0: All right, hope you got a bulletin on the way in. There's some notes you can track along with the message. Take your Bible out, turn your Bible app on, find John 14. We're going to reference the verses that we read several times this morning, so you're going to want to have that handy. This morning we are back in, or we're still in, the farewell discourse. I've mentioned to you over the last couple of weeks that the farewell discourse is Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples. Is literally Jesus saying farewell to his friends. They're together for a Passover meal, a Passover celebration. These men have followed Jesus for three years, give or take, and they are greatly concerned that Jesus is saying goodbye, that he's leaving, and that they aren't going with him when he goes. And so Jesus, in response to their concern, tells his disciples that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Thomas speaks up and he says, we don't know the way to where you're going. And Jesus responds and he says, Thomas, you know me. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. This is the sixth. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Now, this idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life is a little bit abstract. It's a little bit out there. And one of Jesus' disciples, a man named Philip, is really struggling with this idea that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. John MacArthur is a pastor in California. He's written a book about the apostles. In that book, he calls Philip a bean counter, Philip, the apostle who was a bean counter. Maybe you remember the story, John chapter 6, Jesus is getting ready to feed 5,000 people with a small lunch. Before he does it, the Bible says in John 6 that Jesus looked at Philip and he said, Philip, out of all the disciples, Philip, where are we going to get enough food to feed all of these people? I don't know exactly why Jesus singled out Philip. Maybe Philip was not great at math and he was counting on his fingers and he was looking at the crowd and he was trying to figure it up. There's a hundred. That probably is a thousand. That's 2,500. That's 5,000 plus the women and the children. Maybe he's crunching the numbers in his head. Jesus singles him out. John says he is testing Philip. And immediately, Philip responds to Jesus. As soon as Jesus says, where are we going to get enough money, enough food to feed all these people? Philip says, Jesus, if we had 200 denarii, it wouldn't be enough to feed all these people. He immediately had the answer. He was counting the beans in his head. He is a practical man. He deals in concrete realities, which is why in this passage, when Jesus says that he's going away, you know the way, I'm the way, the truth, and the life— Philip speaks up and he says, Jesus, all we want is to see the Father. That's enough. If you show us the Father, that will be enough. Essentially, what he's asking for is a theophany, or you might describe that as a visible manifestation of the invisible God. Maybe he has in mind Exodus 3 Moses in the burning bush. Maybe he's thinking, look, Moses got to see something real, something concrete. We don't have any bushes up here, but we got a table. Jesus, make the table burn without burning. If you show us that, that's enough. Maybe he has in mind something like Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is in the temple and he sees this vision of the Lord high and exalted and lifted up. And he's thinking, Jesus, this isn't, a room as big as the temple, if you could just fill it up and the train of your robe could fill it and we could have it shake and we could have some smoke, if we could have a visible experience of the Father, maybe that would be enough. Maybe, and I am purely speculating here, maybe he had in mind what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, and John went up the mountain with Jesus. They saw Jesus transfigured in all his glory. you remember what Jesus said to them at the end of that? Don't tell anyone what you just saw until I'm raised for the dead. Does anyone think that Peter didn't tell anyone? Based on what you know about Peter in the Gospels, when you tell someone, don't tell anyone. What do most of us naturally and instinctively do? Well, I'm just going to tell one person. Maybe, this is speculation. I have no Bible verse to back this up. Maybe Peter came down from the mountain and he looked at the guys and he said, I'm going to go talk to Philip. And he said, Philip, you won't believe what we just saw. And Philip's been sitting on that the whole time. And he's been thinking, Oh man, I, I wish I could have gone up. It was just Peter, James, and John. And maybe now he sees a window of opportunity. He says, Jesus, listen. I know you say you're the way, the truth, and the life. If you just show us the Father, give us something concrete, it's enough. You see the irony in what he's asking. He is sitting at the table with God, eternal God. Who has taken on human flesh, and he is asking for something concrete, and Jesus responds to Philip, his response sums up our big idea this morning. Here it is, knowing Jesus is knowing the Father. That's the big idea of these verses, verse 8 down to verse 14, if you know Jesus, you know the Father. If you hear Jesus, you hear the Father. When you see the truth about Jesus, you've seen the truth about the Father. And I just want to give you a small word of caution. John 14, 15, 16, 17. These are among the deepest Trinitarian waters in all of Scripture. Right, The things that Jesus says to the disciples that he's saying to us about who he is and who the Holy Spirit is and who God the Father is. There are things in these chapters that make your head hurt. And the danger is that we simplify what Jesus is saying by taking things away that we just can't process or that we simplify what Jesus is saying by adding to what Jesus has to say. And you and I over the next few weeks have to walk this tightrope as Jesus leads us into deep Trinitarian waters to say we're not gonna take away from what Jesus says. We're not gonna add to what Jesus says. We're just gonna simply try to make sense of this mystery that is the Trinity. For example, when you read through these chapters, it becomes obvious that the Father is not the Son. They're not the same. The Father and the Son are not the same. The Son and the Spirit are not the same. They are distinct persons, and yet the Bible is perfectly clear that there is only one God. God is one in essence, and yet we read that these three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, distinct persons, are all part of the Godhead. Jesus is going to say to his disciples, I'm leaving, I'm going away, but I'll be with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. In some sense, Jesus is gone, and yet in some sense, he's with us, In the person of the Spirit. And in this passage, Jesus says to the disciples, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. He's very clear about who he is and who the Father is. Tell you a quick story. My family moved to Odessa in the spring of 2014. And about six months after I had uh, been here in Odessa, I was working in the office, working on a sermon, and somebody rang my phone and said, hey, you have a call, line two, whatever. I picked it up, and on line two was an angry woman. I don't know who she was. She did not tell me her name. I still don't know who it was. It might have been one of you for all I know. She was angry, and I don't mean a little bit angry. I mean really, really, really angry, saying some things that let me know immediately this woman is really upset. And she told me, once she was sure, you're the pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church, yes. She said, well, I need to let you know that one of your church vehicles just ran me off of I-20. And it was raining, and she said, they just came flying over across traffic, and I had to swerve, and I almost spun, and she was mad, Really, really mad. And a lot of you, I know what you're thinking. You hear a story like that and you think, I bet it was the youth pastor. (laughs) I bet it was Hunter Siegler. But I'll just remind you that in the winter of 2014, Hunter Siegler didn't work here. He worked at First Midland. And so now, (laughs) now you're thinking what Hunter's thinking and you're thinking, I bet it was Corey. I bet it was Corey. He always talks about how he likes to splash people when it rains, twice a year it rains. He drives around town, he's splashing people. He's trying to splash this innocent lady driving down I-20 and she gets run off the road. I bet it was Corey. So she is really letting me have it, right? Your vehicle, set a manual on the side, ran me off the road. But I'm listening and she keeps saying it was your church van, it was your church van, it was your church van. And so I just stopped her and I said, ma'am, hold on just a second. I want to get to the bottom of this, and I want to discipline, to the best of my ability, the person who ran you off the road. Are you quite sure it was a church van that ran you off the highway? She said, I'm absolutely certain. A Ford, 15-passenger van, said a manual Baptist church right down the side, and then right below it, it said such and such city, and the city she read to me or said to me was not Odessa. Odessa. And I said, ma'am, this is Emmanuel Baptist Church in Odessa, Texas. We don't own any church vans, we own church buses. And then I patiently waited for her apology, and she hung up on me. <laughs> she just hung up the phone. She didn't even say, I'm sorry. She probably just Googled Emmanuel Baptist Church. That's what came up. And the Biggest thing that happened out of that is Corey almost got a mark on his permanent record, and I got an earful that I didn't deserve. Simple case of mistaken identity. The stakes in the end were not all that big. When it comes to Jesus, the stakes are big. You cannot afford to be mistaken about who he is. When it comes to the creator of the universe, the stakes are simply too high for you to get mixed up about some of the details and the facts. And here's the facts the God of heaven has revealed himself to humanity in the scriptures. He's told us who he is, what he's like, what he's done. That revelation culminated in the incarnation. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh walking on this earth. And Jesus spoke to his disciples. We get to eavesdrop in on that conversation and listen to heaven-sent truth about who Jesus is. And in this passage, we come away understanding that if you know Jesus, you know the Father. If you've heard from Jesus, you have heard from the Father. When you've seen the truth about Jesus, you have seen the truth about the Father. It, it begs this question, how can we be certain that Jesus is who he claimed to be so that we don't run the risk of uh, mistaken identity or confusion or getting the facts wrong? How do we know that we really can believe Jesus when he says these things about who he is and who God is? Jesus gives us two proofs. Number one, we can listen to his words. Number two, we can consider his works. That's what Jesus offers to Philip here. Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father and it's enough. And Jesus says, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you've heard me all these years, you've heard the Father. The Father has been speaking through me. Philip, have you considered the words that I've spoken? Philip, The Father has been working through me. Have you considered the works that I've done? Look at John 14, verse eight. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words, Philip. Philip, the words. That I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Philip, have you listened to my words? Have you considered my works? Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. I would just ask you this morning to simply wrestle with these two questions. Have you listened? To the words of Jesus I'm not asking you have you gone to church all your life I'm not asking you did you go to VBS did you go to youth camp I'm not asking are you a religious or a spiritual person I'm saying to you God has spoken to us in the Bible Genesis to Revelation it is his word it is his self-revelation to human beings and in the gospels we have the words of Jesus have you listened to his words have you read them I'm not saying, do you kind of know about them? I'm saying, have you listened to his words? If you have, do they sound like the words of a madman? Uh, Do they sound like the words of a a crazy guy? Uh, Do they sound like the words of somebody who's just off in left field? Or do they sound to you like the words of somebody sent from heaven? And I'm asking you to consider his works. John 20 said, the signs in this gospel have been written down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Have you considered the signs, the miracles, the wonders that Jesus has performed? Walking on water, feeding a crowd of tens of thousands of people with a small lunch, casting out demons, raising the dead. Have you considered... His works. When you think about those miracles, do they sound like the action and the behavior of a phony, a charlatan, an imposter? Or do they sound like the kind of things that someone might do if they were really heaven sent? Consider his works. Listen to his words. You keep reading in this passage. You're trying to take in this truth. That to see Jesus is to see the Father. To listen to Jesus is to listen to the Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. And then Jesus keeps talking. Sometimes you listen to Jesus, it's like trying to drink out of a fire hydrant. He just keeps saying things that are hard to take in. And he says a couple of things at the end of this passage that you really need to slow down and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What do you mean, Jesus, when you say that? And I just want to clarify a few things on the back end of this passage. The first is this stuff about greater works. What in the world did Jesus mean when he said believers would do greater works than what he had done? Look what he says in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Philip, have you listened to my words and have you considered my works? And then he says to the group, Listen, fellas, if you believe in me, you will do the works that I'm doing, and greater works than these are you going to do. And you say, well, I've never cast a demon out of anybody, I've never walked on water, I've certainly not raised the dead. What in the world does Jesus expect me to do that would top those things? And that's where we need to hit the brakes. And I would say, I don't think Jesus is saying your works will be qualitatively greater as if you're going to one-up the things that he did in his life and his ministry. The key to this verse is the end of verse 12. Jesus says, if you believe in me, you'll do the works. And greater works than these will you do, circle the word because, Because I'm going to the Father. And as we keep reading in John 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, we come to understand that because Jesus is going to the Father, the Holy Spirit is coming to God's people. And it's the coming of the Holy Spirit that unlocks and unleashes the missionary movement of the early church. That's the greater work that Jesus is talking about. He's not going to say you're going to do more impressive miracles. What Jesus is talking about is really pretty simple. Our works are greater ethnically. Our works are greater numerically. Our works are greater geographically. Numerically, ethnically, and geographically. Jesus comes to the end of his life in this passage. He's in the room with all Jewish men. They're all Jews. They're celebrating the Passover. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples, people from all the nations hear the good news of the gospel, not just Jews. Jesus comes to the end of his three-year ministry. He's celebrating the Passover with 12 Jewish men, and one of them defects. So he's down to 11. 11. You can almost count them on your fingers. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church, Peter, bumbling, fumbling, stumbling Peter, will stand up and preach a sermon, and 2,000 people walk the aisle. It's numerically greater than 11. Jesus spent his entire life in a relatively small piece of real estate, Galilee in the north, then Samaria in the middle, then Judea in the south, and he just went back and forth. He never left that area. In the book of Acts, the church is sent out across the entire Roman Empire. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, your works will be greater. He's talking about the missionary movement of the church. You understand, we don't have the apostles with us today, but we do have the Holy Spirit with us today, and the Spirit of God is still using the people of God to build and to establish the kingdom of God is still happening today. Jesus never preached good news to an atheist in Toronto, Canada. He never did it. If you've gone on a mission trip with us to Toronto, you've done that. Jesus never went and served at Mission Arlington, underprivileged children, living in underprivileged apartment complexes. If you've gone with our youth on that mission trip, you've done that. Jesus has used you in that way. Jesus has never served a meal to hungry orphans in Kenya. But if you've gone to Kenya with us and you've gone to a nourishing the nation's feeding site, feeding church, you've taken a bowl of food and you've handed it to a hungry kid. You've done that. That's the kind of stuff Jesus is talking about where he says, look, if you believe in me, you are gonna do the kinds of works that I've been doing and yours are gonna be greater than mine, greater ethnically, not just Jewish people, but all ethnicities, greater numerically, not just 11 guys in a room, but thousands upon thousands on the very first day of church history, greater geographically, not just Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, but the ends of the earth. Some of you say, well, I haven't gone to Canada or Toronto or Arlington. I have gone to any of those places. Where do I fit in? You fit in where my friend Charles Powers fits in. When I was a brand new pastor in Frankfort, Kentucky, North Benson Baptist Church, our oldest deacon was named Charles Powers. He was old. He died while I was there. I preached his funeral. Charles, as of about 2008, still did not have running water in his house. He had only recently gotten one line of electricity in so that he had a pull chain light he lived 90-plus years, and he never left Franklin County. Never had a driver's license. Spent his entire life in one little spot. But all the people that he rubbed shoulders with in that one little spot knew that he loved Jesus. You know how they knew? It was because he told them. He opened his mouth, and he talked about Jesus. And when it came time for a missions offering... He may not have put the biggest dollar amount towards our missions offering, but he gave sacrificially towards our missions offering. He was involved in the same kind of stuff that we're talking about, that Jesus was talking about 2,000 years ago. If you believe in me, you will do the works that I've been doing. In fact, the works that you do through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit will be greater than the works that I've been doing. He's not saying you got to one-up him in showmanship. He's talking about the missionary movement of the church that you have a role in and that I have a role in. What about this stuff at the end about prayer? One more tricky part in this passage. We can't overlook it. What did Jesus mean when he said he would do anything that we ask, quote, in his name? Look at verse 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Sounds like a prosperity preacher verse to me. What do you think? Sounds like the kind of thing that men like Joel Osteen and Kenneth Copeland talk a lot about. I'll give you just a couple of examples. I had a quote from Joel Osteen, I, I had a slide made to put it up there, and I said, I can't, I'm can't. i not putting that up on the screen. So I just put it in my notes. And then I kept working on my notes, and I said, that's going to contaminate the rest of my notes. I can't leave that in my notes. So look, I've got it right here. <laughs> this is a book he wrote several years ago. He's telling people how you ought to pray, right? Jesus is talking about prayer here. Anything you ask, I'll do it. Asking ask in my name, it's done. Osteen says, this is how you ought to pray. And I'm gonna give you just a little snippet. Pray like this. I am prosperous. I am successful. I am victorious. I am talented. I am creative. I am wise. I am healthy. I am in shape. I'll just stop at that one. As a guy who would like to lose about 10 pounds, I'll stop right there. You know, I, I follow David Sunderland's son on social media. I don't know if any of you follow this guy. He's in shape. Like he bench presses Volvos and he squats small homes. And he's not just all muscle, he runs marathons. And someone should really tell him, you don't have to do all that late weightlifting. You just have to say, I'm in shape. That's all you got to do, Right? I mean, that's essentially what these guys talk about in other areas of life. You don't, you don't have to practice to play electric guitar or bass guitar or drums or piano like these guys on stage. You just have to say, it's right here, I'm talented. I'm creative. That's all you got to say, right? I mean, it's preposterous. You know it is. I know it is. We all know it is. It's ridiculous. Over the summer, Kenneth Copeland Went viral, if it's still a thing to go viral. He had a clip from a message. It was very awkward and creepy to me, but in this clip, he banished COVID from the earth. He named it and he claimed it and he said, it's done, COVID is gone. So I don't know why we're still having cases. Maybe that's not how it works. You know that's not how it works question is, what is Jesus talking about when he says what he says here? Right, there's a lot to take in. If you know Jesus, you know the Father, right? If you know Jesus and you know the Father, you're going to be involved in these greater works. If you know Jesus and you know the Father, you're going to ask things in Jesus' name, and He's going to do them. What in the world does that mean? Let me give you a few thoughts. Number one, we need to have faith in Jesus. Number two. We've got to seek to glorify Jesus. And number three, we've got to acknowledge our dependence on Jesus. Just think about those in turn. You and I have faith in Jesus, we don't have faith in ourselves, we don't have faith in prayer itself. We don't have faith in the power of positive thinking or the power of saying the right words just the right way. We have faith in Jesus, which means we come to God confessing our sin, acknowledging that we are treasonous rebels in God's sight and that our only hope for life and forgiveness is in Jesus. That's part of what it means to pray in his name, is to have faith, not in yourself, not in your own abilities, not in the power of your words, but faith in Jesus. Secondly, we seek to glorify Jesus. Seek to glorify Jesus. We don't seek to obtain our own selfish desires in all its full manifestation. Rather, we seek God's kingdom, God's will, not our kingdom, not our will. And thirdly, you understand Jesus says, ask these things in my name. Not claim these things in my name, not demand these things in my name, not rub the bottle and let the genie come out and then tell him what your wish is, but ask these things. Ask. You're needy. You're small. You don't know very much. You can't do very much. So you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I I need help. Here's how I think I need help. I might be wrong about how I need help. I just need you. That's what it means to pray something in Jesus' name. It's to have faith in Jesus, to seek to glorify Jesus, to acknowledge your dependence on Jesus. I like the way Hudson Taylor brings all this together. Hudson Taylor uh, was a true man of God. He was a missionary. He left home. He went to China. He was the founder of something called the China Inland Mission. And he says this about prayer. I think it's spot on. He says, I used to ask God to help me. Then I asked him if I might help him. Finally, I ended up asking him to do his work in me and through me if he would be so pleased. I think that's the right progression when you think about prayer. And I'm not telling you, don't ever ask God for help. And I'm not telling you, neither is Hudson Taylor telling you, don't pray that you might be part of what God is doing. I just think this progression that Taylor describes is Is emblematic of what Jesus is talking about here, where he says, praying in his name. That is not a magical formula. We're not animists who believe if you say the right combination of words, you get an automatic outcome. We have faith in Jesus because we don't have faith in ourselves. We want to glorify him, we don't want to live for ourselves. And our desire ultimately is to be dependent on Jesus. So that's the passage. The way I want to end this morning is just asking you to think. I just want to ask you some questions and I just want you to think. It's a pretty straightforward passage. There's a lot to take in. There's some tricky parts, but you put it all together. Let's try to answer these questions. Number one, in your heart, do you believe Jesus is who he claimed to be? That's kind of what the whole thing's about. Jesus is leaving and the disciples are terrified and Jesus says, look, you know the way. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the Father. Do you believe the truth about Jesus? Do you believe that this story describes a group of men sitting around a table eating a Passover meal and that one of them was the eternal, infinite Creator God who had taken on human flesh. Do you believe that? And do you believe Jesus when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and you cannot, no one can come to the Father unless he or she comes through me. Do you believe that? I hope you believe it. Question two, do you actually expect Jesus to do these greater things through you? I mean, he says, if anyone believes in me, he'll do the works that I've been doing and greater works than these will he do. Do you have that expectation in your life? I'm not saying signs and wonders and miracles, walking on water. I'm not saying go to lunch, order one taco, and feed the whole family. I'm saying, do you actually believe Jesus that he wants to use you to share the gospel with your neighbor? That's part of the work that he's talking about. Do you believe that Jesus actually wants to use you on a short-term mission trip to feed orphans, to share the gospel with atheists, to serve underprivileged kids at apartment complexes? Do you believe that when you give to a missions offering, even if you're not impressed with the size of your own gift, that God Almighty can use that to accomplish these greater works that Jesus is talking about? Do you have this expectation? Thirdly, do you talk to Jesus? I could just put the question mark there. Yes or no? Do you talk to Jesus believing that he hears you and that he will answer prayer? And we've backed off the crazy land of the prosperity preachers and saying, you're not bossing God around. You're not naming it and claiming it. It's not the power of positive thinking. But Jesus is clearly talking about prayer here and he clearly describes a situation in which we pray a certain way in his name and he answers that prayer. Do you believe That when you come to Jesus and you have faith in him, you've confessed your sin, you believe the truth about who he is and what he accomplished on the cross. When you're seeking in your life to glorify him, not yourself but him, and when you are dependent on his sovereignty and his wisdom, you're not presuming to tell Jesus how to run the universe, but you are rightly dependent on him. Do you believe that he will answer prayer? Jesus says he will. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he'll use you in these greater works? And do you talk to him like he actually knows what he's talking about when he talks about prayer in this passage? I think it's a good way for us to end this morning praying in that way. So let's pray.